You may be seated. So the title of this sermon is, Why Does the Incarnation Matter? I mean, why does it matter so much that every year we do this? There were lots of other days in Jesus' life. There were lots of other events in the life of Jesus Christ that mattered, and we don't do all of this. Why is the incarnation of Jesus Christ so special that we actually observe a day, and you understand the day is not apostolic. They did not institute the observance of a day called Christmas. That came a little later in church history. It is therefore a tradition, which is a wonderful tradition. I love it. Why did we invent that, and why do we observe that tradition? Why do we not have, for example, woman at the well day? And on woman at the well day, I'm kind of digging the idea, because on woman at the well day, here's what happens. Every one of us has to meet a perfect stranger and lead them and their whole town to Christ. That'd be a good day. Why don't we have, every year, a cleansing the temple day? You and your family at home, you put a bunch of coins on the table and you tell your kids, now throw over the tables. Crack whips around the house. Why don't, why don't we have a cleansing the table day every year? Why do we have an incarnation day? Why do we pick out that day out of all the possible days in the life of Jesus Christ? His birth, his death, Good Friday, his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Why those three, really, but I'm going to limit myself to the one. Why that? Here's the short answer, and I'll put it up for you. The incarnation is absolutely fundamental to our salvation through Jesus Christ. So if he had never met the woman at the well and led her and her town to himself, could we still be saved? Yes, we could. If he had never turned over the, the tables of the money changers in the temple, could we still be saved? Yes, we could. But if he had never come God in human flesh, God incarnate, if he had never died on Calvary's cross, if he had never risen on the third day, we would not be saved by him. So it's, it's, it's worthy that we take this day and celebrate the day in which God became man. Now, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews, and let me just tell you, let me give you some of the layout. Hebrews chapter 1, the entire message of Hebrews chapter 1, there are sub-messages, but the big message is, he was God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, he is, he was, he is God. That's next week's sermon, by the way. We're going to have another Christmas sermon next week. How Christmassy am I, huh? Hebrews chapter 2, the message is, especially from verse 9 on, the repeated message is, and he was man. So Hebrews chapter 1, it's God who came, and Hebrews chapter 2, and he came and took on real human flesh and had real human blood. He is God, and he is man. A perfect incarnation, a perfect Christmas message, Hebrews 1 and 2. But now that I've introduced the topic and told you where we're going, Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to make you wait a little bit, and we're going to take a little trip back through church history. I want you to go back to the ancient city of Alexandria with me back in AD 325. Who's a church history whiz in here? Who knows what happened in... Yes. Well, actually, it was in, I'm sorry, one of the characters came out of Alexandria. His name is Arius. We'll get to him. But it was in Nicaea. 
There was a great council, the first ecumenical council of the Christian church ever. Uh, 300 church leaders, pastors, bishops, they called them. A bishop was a pastor who had ascended to special prominence in a location, in a region, and he was kind of over all the pastors and all the churches in that region. And 300 of those came together at the Council of Nicaea to deliberate and determine certain truths from the Scriptures, like what do we believe, because there are different views going on. And, and probably the main thing they deliberated about and the main thing they determined was Jesus Christ was God and human, two natures, one person, both natures perfectly commingled. That's, that's what they determined. Prior to that, no authoritative body of the church gathered together and said, here's the legitimate doctrine that we find in the Word of God. But they did that. But there were many views. There were those there who argued that he was man, but he was not God. There were others who argued that he's God, but he was not man. There were others there who argued he was God and man, but the two natures remained separate, so he was kind of a, a, a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde. There's two people inside of him, and they don't mix, so at any moment you might be getting God, and at any moment you might be getting man. Then there were others who said, no, actually, he was neither God nor man, but the two came together and created some one new thing. So there were, there were all these views that new thing was neither God nor human nor angel. It was some other, other category. So there were all these views going around in Christendom. Now, at the end of the day, there were two views remain, remaining standing. It's like, anybody like MMA? Like a good MMA fight? You watch some MMA? And suppose they have like a playoff and you start with six players, because there were six views, and that round fights, and now you go down to, what, three players, and that round fights, and now you go down to two players, and now you have two. You have two remaining. Two are standing. And that's how it happened at this council, and there are two remaining, two standing, and one is the view of Arius, and the other is the view of the Trinitarians. Let me tell you a little bit about Arius. You probably know about Arius. Um, Arius was a priest in Alexandria. There's where Alexandria comes into the story. And Arius taught that way back at creation, the very first thing God made was Jesus and made him to be Savior. He was, he was not human or divine. He was something different, something special. But he was not divine. He was not co-eternal with the Father. He began to be at that point, and then God involved him in all creation. That was the view of Arius. So Arius had, he was not divine, and probably he was not even human. He was some other thing. That view had become very popular with these nomadic German people called the Goths, who were populated quite a bit in Italy and Spain and down in Egypt. So their view was being represented by this man, Arius. And who championed the Trinity? Well, many people championed the Trinity, but I want to mention two of them. You church history people, who's the first one? That's right, it's Athanasius, or Athanasius, you said, I don't know which it is. 
You know the story about Athanasius? He was not even there as one of the bishops. He was a scribe. Like one of the bishops said to him, come along, bring your pen and some paper. You need to write some things down for me. He was a scribe, probably squint-eyed, little hunched, pocket protector. Guys who work out at the gym a lot would have referred to him derogatorily as a pencil neck because he had a neck about the size of a pencil because he never lifted weights one day in his life. He was a scribe. He was there as a scribe, but he was a scribe who believed in Trinitarianism. He had found that in his Bible, but it wasn't going too well for Trinitarianism, and the Arians were carrying the day. God created Jesus first, and it looked like everybody was being swept that way from these two remaining views, Trinitarianism or Arianism, and one day one of Athanasius' very best friend said to him, Athanasius, the world is against you. His famous reply, then Athanasius is against the world. I don't know any Latin, but I know this part. Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. And by the way, and this is a total aside that I'd like to launch on for a while, but can't. You'll lose track of where we're going But sometimes to live the Christian life in this fallen and sinful world, you have to be Steve or Debbie or whoever you are against the world. Amen? Sometimes you need to tell your kids, yes, I know everybody's doing it, but we're not going to do it because as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. It's dad against the world, back to where we're going. So Athanasius was one who championed the, tr- championed the Trinity, but let me tell you about another one who sort of championed it. Actually, I'll, I'll tell you the truth now. We're not even sure he was really there. This might be apocryphal, but it makes for good preaching. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you about it. This is, this is tradition, though the history is somewhat sketchy. There was another they, there named Nicholas. Does that ring any Christmas bells in your head? Nicholas, as in jolly old saint, this was him. There was a man, Nicholas, that part's the story is true. Whether he was at the Council of Nicaea, we don't know. Whether he did what I'm going to tell you they say he did, we don't know. But there was a Nicholas who was a giver of gifts, and he gave them incognito. He gave them secretly so that nobody would know where the gift came from. He was a very wealthy man and inherited wealth from his parents. So one of the bishops there was named Nicholas, later St. Nicholas, and one day as Arius was up there blabbing and blabbing his heresy about God created Jesus and then through him all things, the story goes that Nicholas got so agitated by this, he was so disturbed by this, that he went over to Arius and punched him in the face. Just imagine, your elders are meeting for our monthly elders meeting. Pastor Jason Wallace goes over to Pastor Stan and says, oh yeah? (laughs) You've heard the song, Santa Claus Got Run Over by a Reindeer. The song should be, Santa Claus Claus Punched a Heretic in the Face. That may be apocryphal. Santa punched the lights out of a heretic. But he became one who was called a saint aside, you know, in the Bible, a saint is a child of God, a believer. Every Christian is a saint. It's the word hagios. It means holy one. You've been made holy and set apart unto God through the blood of Christ. You've been washed and cleansed and made holy in the sight of God through the blood of Christ. You're a holy one. If you're a believer in Christ, you're a saint. 
but they began calling extraordinary Christian saints, and Nicholas became a saint in that sense in their day. And he was a very kind man and had this reputation for helping the poor. Now, over time, the Dutch had a nickname for him, which was Sinterklaas. Sinterklaas. I don't know which. Close enough. Jolly old Saint Nick. Where we got the reindeer, the caribou, I don't know. Where we got the red jacket, I don't know. Where, where we got caribou that fly, I don't know. Where we got coming down through chimneys, I don't know. But that's where we get Santa Claus. But here's why I told you that. It's interesting how two things intersect. Santa Claus, the original Santa Claus, was a guy who at least lived during the time of the Council of Nicaea and who was a Trinitarian who believed and defended the concept of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and Christ being God in the flesh, which is the incarnation. Santa Claus defended the incarnation. I just think that's pretty cool and had to tell you about it, even though there might be some mythical parts in the story. So that was our dip in the church history. Now remember, here's, here's what we're doing. We're asking and answering the question, why do we even have Christmas Day? And the answer is because without the incarnation, there is no salvation. Hebrews chapter 2 answers this in three ways. Let me give you the outline, and then we'll jump into the point one of the outline. Here's the outline. First, without the incarnation, there is no salvation from sin. Second, without the incarnation, there is no victory over death. And third, without the incarnation, there's no mediator between God and man. So all of that is in Hebrews chapter 2, plus lots, lots more. If you don't have an incarnation, you're losing Jesus Christ, Savior. You're losing salvation. You're kind of like those Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, if there's no resurrection, then we Christians are fools. We're of all men most to be pitied. Same thing if there's no incarnation. Without, let's look at the first point out of that. Without the incarnation, there is no salvation from sin. Here's how the author builds that case. Look at Hebrews 2.9 with me. It'll come up for you. But, but we see him, this, that's Jesus, who for a little while, the days of his incarnation, was made lower than the angels. So he was made human. Human is what's lower than the angels. There's God, there's angels, there's people, there's animals. Human is a little lower than the angels. This is Jesus. We see him a little while, he was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, but now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And why? What's the reason? So that. Why did the incarnation matter? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. If there's no God in the flesh, we'll see this developed more then there's no savior for everyone. He had to take on flesh. God had to come in human flesh. Here's the purpose. Here's why the incarnation matters. So that by the grace of God, without the incarnation, you don't get this. So he might taste death for everyone. If he was not human, he could not taste death for humans. A cat could not die for humans. Certainly not a cat, right? A dog, maybe. No, not really. A dog couldn't die for humans either. It had to be a human who took on our flesh, who took on our nature, who would die on Calvary's cross in our stead. He goes on developing this in verse 10. For it was fitting, 
that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that's the Father in this case, it was fitting that for him in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's his humanity. He suffered in his humanity. He suffered during his time of incarnation. It was fitting that he should become incarnate and suffer like all humans do. It was fitting that the founder of our salvation would do that. He goes on, Hebrews 2, 11 and 12. For he who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those who are sanctified, that's you, that's us, that's believers, all have one source. Now, I got to plant it right there for a second. I do a little explaining. That doesn't mean Jesus has a source from the Father, and Arius was right, and he is sourced from the Father like we're sourced from the Father, it means several possible things. One, it does mean Jesus is generated by the Father. There is a doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. He was gen- he's generated from the Father, but eternally. He is the only begotten. He is the eternally begotten. There never was a time when he was not. All things that were created, he's uncreated and left out of this equation. All things that were created were created by him and through him and unto him. So he's the creator of all. He's God. But he's God the Son who is eternally generated by the Father. Others say, and I read a bunch of commentaries this week, commentators. Sometimes commentators are just commentators. Uh... So when, they ha- when Christ and his people all have one source, it might be that this is Adam. Christ as human came from Adam. We as human came from Adam. It might be Noah. We all came through Noah. Some even posit maybe it's Abraham because we're children of Abraham by faith and he came through Abraham by blood and, and certainly by faith if you want to call it that. Whichever of those options you want, they all work. He who sanctifies Christ and those who are sanctified all have one source, meaning we're all human. We all have real flesh. And that is why, and this is amazing, that is why he is not ashamed to call them, his people, his followers, believers, brothers. He calls you brothers in humanity. We are brothers. He calls them brothers saying, and now is a quote from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm par excellence. In the first part of the psalm, you have Jesus hanging on the cross and what he sees and what he feels, he's expressing it through the mouth of the psalmist. In the second part of the psalm, you have Jesus resurrected. And as resurrected in Psalm 22, he says, and here are the words quoted in Hebrews from Psalm 22, he's resurrected and he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. We are his brothers because he took on our flesh. In the midst of the congregation, what does Jesus say? Where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. He is in the congregation. And he says, I will be there with them singing your praise. That's Jesus. He had to take on flesh. He had to rise from the dead to save a people. So let me summarize. Next slide, please. Without the incarnation, there's no salvation from sin. 
Here's another reason from Hebrews 2 why the incarnation matters. Without the incarnation, neither is there. There is no victory over death. Without the incarnation, there's no victory over death. Look at Hebrews 2.14 with me, please. Since therefore the children, that's us again, we share flesh and blood, right? Y'all look like you're here in a body, that's flesh. Y'all probably have some blood flowing through that body, that's, that's blood. We all share in that. Since we the children share in that, here's a verse for Arius. He himself likewise partook of the same things. What could be more clear? He was human. And he's about to tell us the reason why, but don't go there yet. He himself partook of the same thing. Jesus Christ partook of real human flesh, and he had real human blood flowing through his veins. But go back to chapter 1, which we haven't seen yet next week. And he was also God. God came in the flesh. And the word became flesh, John 1, 14, and tabernacled among us, made his dwelling place among us. And since we have flesh and blood, he partook of the same things. Why? Purpose clause. That. In order that. Here's why he had to come as a human. Here's why he had to take on flesh and have real blood. In order that through death, He had to die as a human in order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Verse 15, and and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, a verse that we looked looked at last week. Why did Jesus have to come in human flesh? Why does the incarnation matter? Because without the incarnation, there is no victory over death. He obtained victory over death for us the third day after the cross. That's why Easter is an equally awesome and amazing holiday. His incarnation, his death on the cross, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday are the big, without them, there's no salvation. You can admit a whole lot of other things in the life of Christ, there's still salvation, but not those. Why was it important that he come incarnate so that there would be victory, victory over death? Remember the penalty for our fall, we all, when Adam sinned, we all sinned with him and fell in him in his first transgression. Remember the penalty God declared for that fall is Hebrew. Here's how they intensify it. Dying you shall die. What that means is you'll surely die. You'll really die. And we died spiritually on the spot. (laughs) Died spiritually. And we die physically as a result. That usually comes a little later. How do we get released from that bondage to death and the fear of that Christ took on human flesh and conquered death and opened the way for us to rise after our death, to be raised like him. We'll have a resurrection like his. It was important that Christ take on flesh so he could be raised and conquer death. Let's go to a third point we'll review first. Sorry, keep going. Next slide. Without the incarnation, there's no salvation from sin. That was point one. And without the incarnation, there's no victory over death. That was point two. Now let's go to point three. Without the incarnation, there's no mediator between God and man. You need a mediator, someone who can go between, because in your flesh, in your sins, as you come naked from your mother's womb, 
Things aren't right with you and God. You are born at enmity with God. You are born spiritually estranged from God. You are born without the life of God in your soul. You are born spiritually, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in your trespasses and sins. Things aren't right with God. We need a mediator who can make things right. We need a go-between. That was Christ. But without the incarnation, this author is going to argue, there's no mediator. Look at verse 16 with me, please. This is a cool verse. For surely, he says, surely. If you know anything about God's word, you know this. For surely, it is not angels that he helps. Isn't that interesting? That's interesting to me in a bunch of ways. He, doesn't, he didn't die for angels. He doesn't help angels. Now, we know there's two groups of angels. There's the elect angels who have remained holy, and there are the fallen angels who are the devil and his demons. The elect angels don't need salvation. That's why Peter says they are longing to look into our salvation so that they may discover things about the mercy and the grace and the love of God that they would not experience apart from viewing it in our salvation. Angels long to look into this stuff. But they don't need a Savior. He didn't die for angels. And the fallen angels, there is no salvation offered them. I just want to make this point. Some of you don't get mad at me, just think about it. The demand that there must be equity in everything. The demand that there must be equality of outcomes in everything does not fit God in a lot of ways. There's one. This group over here, sorry, no salvation. They are damned. There's a place of outer darkness prepared for them. So the text says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps people. He helps humans. And verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. There's that Psalm 22 word again. He calls us brothers after his resurrection. He had to be made like his brothers. Why? Why did he have to? In every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. Next slide. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why did he have to take on flesh? So that he could be a mediator. So that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest who would sympathize with us in our sins and transgressions and weaknesses and who would offer himself in our stead, the just and holy one for sinners like us. That's why the incarnation mattered. To be a faithful high priest, a merciful high priest, to make propitiation. Oh, some of you are new to this. You wonder what in the world is, pro- what's a propitiation? Propitiation is a big Bible term that, that means he satisfied, he completely, he fully satisfied the Father's righteous demands, the demands of his law upon us. We did not satisfy God's law. We have broken God's law and wounded our consciences and grieved the Spirit of God. But Jesus came and in our stead fully satisfies God's righteous demands so that God can look at you in Christ and say, clean, holy, saint, forgiven, pardoned. This is why he had to come. 
so that we would have a mediator. And it says in verse 18, let's go to the next verse, please. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. Remember that? Out in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by the devil. And don't think that was all of his temptation. It was always in the flesh, but that was the most intense period. How many of you have ever had an intense, demonic, satanic warfare launched right at you for 40 days and 40 nights while you don't have food? And not give in. Who feels the full brunt of a temptation? The one who never gives in. And he never gave in. And he always kept God's law in your stead. And his law keeping, his righteous life gets reckoned to you, gets imputed to you when you come forward and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't mean come forward in a building. I mean when you bring your heart forward to God. So because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able. This is why he had to come incarnate. So that he would be able to help those who are being tempted. So, without the incarnation, there's no salvation from sin. We're reviewing. Give me that slide, please. And without the incarnation, there's no victory over death. And without the incarnation, there is no mediator between God and man. And that, my friends, is why Christmas matters. That's why we have a Christmas and we don't have cleansing the temple day. That's why we have Christmas and we don't have woman at the well day or any number of other days that we might want to observe in the life. That's why these days are special days. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. They matter. Without this day, there would be no cross. Without this day, there would be no salvation. Without this day, there would be no Easter. There'd be no Good Friday if he had not come, God in the flesh. Without this day, without Christmas Day, whatever day, whatever year it was, there's no salvation. So don't, don't let anybody talk you out of your doctrine of the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, your Savior. As much God as if he were not human, as much human as if he were not God, but both fully, completely commingled together in one person. Don't let anybody talk you out of your doctrine of Jesus' incarnation. Don't let them rob you of Christmas. They say, you Christians, so silly, celebrating the birth of a rabbi who died 2,000 years ago. Who cares? Oh, he was not just a rabbi who died. No, he was God incarnate, came to be a mediator for his people. So my prayer for you, you in the room, you who are with us online, my prayer for you is that you would be one who follows Jesus Christ. Many of us here today, we follow Jesus Christ. It's a good life, amen? Yeah, anybody want to turn back? Anybody saying, no, he's an awful savior. I don't really want him anymore. No, you would cling to him. You'd part with life. You'd part with the world. You'd part with all your possessions because of what you found in Jesus Christ, because of what you found in the kingdom of God. So I'm speaking to you who aren't there yet, who aren't yet in the kingdom of God. You can find that too, and it's free. The free gift of eternal life, the free gift of righteousness is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Salvation is by his grace alone, through your faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, period. Hard stop, end the paragraph. 
And you can simply call upon the name of the Lord and he becomes your mediator. You can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and he satisfies, he propitiates God the Father's righteous demands upon you. You call on the name of the Lord and your record is wiped clean. You want to say like, me? There's a great hymn. Can there be mercy for me? And the answer is, oh yeah, there's plenty of mercy for you. There's more mercy than you and your sins and a whole world and a whole universe of sinners, pardon me, would ever require. So don't let anybody rob you of the joy of your Christmas. And my prayer for you is that you would call upon the name of the Lord. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that with me right now. I'm just doing it for you. I've done it years ago. I'm still following him, but you join me, please. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are praying for people who are gathered with us in this room and people who are with us online. We're praying that they would turn. Oh, friend, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, the message of Christmas. He came to pardon, to save, to redeem, to give life to sinners like you and me. Would you call upon him right now? The words don't matter. Give him your heart. There was a thief who died beside him on the cross. All that thief said was, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Jesus said, that's enough. You just gave me your heart. This day you'll be with me. This day you'll be with me in heaven, in paradise, in glory. Lord, put it in hearts to turn to you. I'm praying for that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.